Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 10th, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Eyes on today's special election in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District reconducted, if that's a word, after a tight race and ballot tampering during last fall's midterm elections. For today's program... Listing some important reading to keep today's conversations on reparations going. So you want to talk about race? Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white America. Lies My Teacher Told Me, What Your American History Teacher Got Wrong, Winners Take All, The New York Times 1619 Project, The Case for Reparations, Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America, and there will be no miracles here. That's background on the juncture at which we've arrived with respect to reparations in the United States. The psalm occasion will be handled by Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor and author of the soon-to-be-released book entitled The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics. A 400-year legacy is a tall order for this full hour. We'll do our best. Return after short station break on Ask a Leader. Thanks for staying tuned. Thank you for staying tuned. Welcome back to the show. Originally, I had planned to have one of my guests be Taisha Brown, chairwoman of the California Democratic Party African American Caucus, but she is unfortunately unavailable to be here with us today. She's heading for D.C. for the Congressional Black Caucus Convention. It's my distinct pleasure to resume with the other part of the plan as our standard bear on identity politics, Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor for the full hour to take up reparations in the U.S. of A, because we all need to do the work of repairing the broken soul of a nation that's done a pretty good job of perpetuating a cruelty on so many levels. Davin Phoenix's research interests include black politics, political behavior, public opinion, political communication, urban politics, and mobilization of marginalized groups. He serves as co-director for the First Generation First Quarter Challenge. Are you still doing that, Davin? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and a much needed uh, service. It's a peer mentoring program faculty co-founder and co-advisor for the Black Internationalists program preparing UCI's black students about experiences of blackness abroad. And as a 2016 Hellman Fellow, he will soon have out his new book entitled The Anger Gap, 
How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics for Action will be published by Cambridge University Press. It's uh, now available for pre-order, but it will be out officially in January. Davin completed his undergraduate work in political science at Christopher Newport University in Virginia, then both his graduate student in the Joint Degree Program for Public Policy and Political Science and Ph.D. at the University of Michigan. Davin joins me in studio, and I want to welcome him back to Ask a Leader. Good morning. So glad to be back to have this very needed and timely discussion. Only It's only, only 400 years now, and it feels like we have hardly even started. We're in a pretty deep hole. Black people were enslaved here longer than they've been free. I'm letting... So many of these details sink in because as a white individual, I have been so ignorant and of so many of the details that I read when we start to approach what are intellectually honest historic depictions of what has been hardwired into black cultural, political, psychological experience. So one thing that totally threw me off that I we can start with, um, I mean, there's there's going to be too many ironies to handle in one hour. But that the independence from Britain, in order what was declared in order to protect the institution of slavery, that that all is being whitewashed in history, and the the sin of paradox, slavery is too shameful. It leads to the hard racial caste system that lives to today, with this tall order of four hundred years of this legacy and ongoing, ongoing hardwiring of this caste system. Devin Phoenix, where can we begin to take on and undo this inordinately unbearable legacy? Well, you certainly don't begin with an easy question. Well, we could, but we're going to break it down in so many different ways, institutionally and structurally and all that. But I just, I want to get out of your way. I want to have your insight about, you know, where where do you think is the immediate way to to take up, like what the, the New York Times had an entire section of Sunday Magazine with amazingly a beautiful writing, and it was hard reading, and it's necessary reading the 1619 project that came out at, at the, about the 400th year anniversary. I want you to, if you could give us some idea of where you think we can begin to do the work that we can be, all of us, more, more aware, less intellectually dishonest about what we see around us now. Sure. So I take a number of minds about this yes. uh, question and this idea of where do we begin to really <sighs> reckon with this history, reckon with this uh, current status, and reckon with the future. For me, this is a question that isn't only colored by my experiences as an educator and a research in politics. So, of course, I think about the roles of education. I think about the roles of research and creating and expanding knowledge. And, of course, I think about the roles of policy, which doesn't simply shape outcomes, but also can shape hearts and minds. But I also think about this personally. I was born in Hampton, Virginia. I call Hampton, Virginia my hometown, where my mom continues to live. 
Hampton is essentially Jamestown. So when we talk about the 400 year anniversary, uh, where the first slave ship drifted up to correct. the Americas, I think about the landing of uh, the first set of African peoples in Jamestown, and that is the living or longest continuous settlement. So I lived kind of in ground zero, uh, where we had the first black people walking on this soil as enslaved. And so I think personally about all of the history that I was living amongst and all of those legacies and all of those whispers that I could maybe hear if I tuned my ears and thought about how much of even that history was lost on me. I think about what I was taught or more accurately was I was what I was not taught in elementary school. I remember the very intentional and concerted and exhaustive efforts to whitewash the story by telling such an impartial or such a partial, such an incomplete part of the story. I remember reading about our founding fathers and George Washington and this sticks out to me in my mind so vividly a clause in our textbook about George Washington was this great person. And yes, he did old slaves, which was a bad thing, but he felt bad about it. So it's it's kind of okay. We're able to just brush it aside. And I think about how I didn't see or read or hear or experience the narratives of people that looked like me, people that built this country, people that created the enormous wealth on the basis of slave labor. And the idea of being born into this and dying into this, I never could really grasp it with the basic conventional education. And so I think something that's so powerful about the 1619 Project is that it's just people telling these stories from a platform that is so often ignored willingly and intentionally, these stories. As part of the peer mentor program that I'm faculty co-director of, We train our student leaders in the idea or the art of storytelling as pedagogy because we recognize there's a real power in being able to articulate your experiences and the pitfalls that you navigated and to not just talk about the beginning, the middle and the end, but to place the people to whom you're telling the story in your shoes and allow them to feel what you felt and see what you saw and hear what you heard. There's something incredibly transformative about that experience, both for the storyteller and for the people hearing the story, because now this experience that was abstract to them is more lived in. And when you live in that experience, you can't whitewash it in the same way. You can't compartmentalize it in the same way. And so I see that transformative power present in this story in the efforts of many people to tell these stories and not just to wash over them but to really reckon with what it means to be black in america what it has always meant from the very beginning what it meant to be labeled as black to have this race and this identity constructed for you what it means to be white what it meant before whiteness was a thing and now that it is a thing and that it seeps into every pore of how we conduct ourselves interpersonally, institutionally, and every facet of our lives and society. And so this isn't simply a call for better empathy and understanding, right? But it is a call for recognizing the ways in which 
our humanity has been structured. Our humanity has been structured by these racial fault lines. These racial fault lines have been not ancillary to the founding of the country and the uh, persisting of the country, right? They've been central to every organizing principle of this country in idea, in practice, in institution. So it, I, I just feel like as I'm speaking, I get broader and broader yes, and bigger and because bigger. It but is. the stakes are that big, right? We can't think about anything in how we govern ourselves that hasn't been touched by the institution and the legacy of slavery. And so as long as we continue to have uh, strategic denial of that fact, we can continue to perpetuate with ease and with kind of clearness of conscience, perpetuate the kind of uh, dehumanization and exploitation of peoples that continues to be uh, a non-trivial part of the way we govern ourselves. And I guess there, there's a couple of words I want to sort of offer to step up the project for everybody. That I, Whitewash is the common term used to describe history that's been uh, overhauled. I'm, I'm wondering if white scour, this, there's been a scouring. Wash sort of implies there's a pure to that, but so I, I guess white scouring is going on. And when you're talking about fault lines, it's the fault lines in these institutional settings the, and, the, and the, the currents, the, the currents that are sweeping through every single sort of structural aspect of American life. And we, we'll, we'll go to break all those down. So I, I was looking around with different, there's so much, there's so many ways to slice this, to uh, so many sources to try to incorporate. And one was, and I'm, I may be uh, sort of broadsiding a little bit with this, but uh, I, I, I raised the, the, the question of the price. What's the price tag that we have examples around the world where reparations have been paid to Holocaust victims, uh, I'm not sure in South Africa that there have been reparations. There's been a reconciliation process, probably one of the purer forms of reconciliation that we can witness in our in our time. I just I wonder if what what is the price? It's sort of it seems to be that we can break it down is how much is it is who's paying this? Who should be the the recipient? where the most impact is made to for restitution for all of these shortcomings over these 400 years. So if you want to take any part of that, what the price is and who pays to whom. Sure. So I have two thoughts come to mind in response to that. Uh, the first is what I believe to be an experiment conducted by a professor in class thinking about the legacies of well, not just the legacies of past racial discrimination, but the continued and contemporary right. instances of it. But he asked his class, which I, if I recall correctly, was either all white or mostly white, to consider a thought exercise. And within this thought exercise, he said, okay, you know, we've made this huge mistake at birth when we were assigning races. We're terribly sorry for the confusion and inconvenience, but you were not supposed to be white. And so you will now go forward the rest of your life not as white. Uh, we'd like to compensate you. So thinking about any kind of costs you might incur going forward, 
not being white what do you think will have you kind of consult amongst yourselves and you arrive at the proper compensation and so the class convened and they determined that the proper price uh, for losing their white skin was a million dollars and so maybe that's a starting point we per, think about per how individual yes per individual right and so we can think about how people can determine this monetary value what is the cost but what I'm more interested in beyond that thought exercise is thinking about what good is distribution of some monetary good within a system that continues to rely on the systematic exploitation of people, people's labor and unfair compensation. Because like with some of the farmers that had their property taken from them during, let's say, for example, during Reconstruction, it, they, they had property, but it was taken away from them when the white supremacy became more institutionalized again, that 22-year period after Reconstruction. So it's like you're saying, if we, we award a, a, a restitution to individuals, does that just get gobbled up by sort of a backlog of costs and or current kinds of of barriers to entry to things where that value could would have had more meaning in a household that didn't have to make up for lost opportunities. Right. And so we can't simply think about how the monetary distribution is likely insufficient to make up for lost time, which we've seen from numerous studies, right, that show middle class black people do not have the same economic security as middle class white people, largely because the money that is accrued is money that's there for that given time that's going to a lot of different places that white people's money isn't going to, in large part because white people have money that came from previous generations. So the biggest difference in uh, black people's college degrees not leading to the same uh, upward economic trajectory as white people's college degrees is that black people on average don't have uh, the money that they've inherited uh, to the degree that white people have. And so whereas uh, generally, not always, right, but many white people have money that they can rely on from their parents, their grandparents, that comes down to them. Many black people actually have their money going the opposite direction where they're making money. They're sending it upwards to their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff like that. And so we can think about the limitations of that money within a racially stratified economic system. We can also think about the ways in which that money is not sufficient to stem the tide of consistent economic exploitation of black labor or to stem the tide of predatory banking and lending practices that have plagued black economic viability from the moment black people started earning money for their labor. And so when you think about reparations in the context of providing people money within a system that is still fundamentally flawed along clear racial lines, then we have to broaden our understanding of reparations. Maybe reparations doesn't come in the form of distribution. Maybe reparations comes in the form of significant restructuring and reordering of some of our key financial and educational and carceral institutions. And we'll break down some of those structural pieces. I want to, though, as we're approaching that, though, is look at if is it not essential for us to reconsider the entire way in which history is being taught. That can, can any of this other take place without everybody owning the kind of cruelty that we have been either participating and or 
benefiting from. If we don't understand that legacy of that cruelty, how do we understand the importance, the emergency of our restructuring our institutions that we rely on? That's incredibly important. Uh, so as a product of public school system, well, K through everything, really, uh, I know firsthand, as many of the listeners know firsthand, how we are not just learning facts. We are being socialized to adopt values and belief systems. And so it's critically important. And people recognize the critical importance of what is or is not taught in these schools, particularly in our most formative stages of development, when we right. are absorbing information like a sponge. It's like information an imprinting. That stays with us, exactly. As we're being imprinted at these earliest stages, what we learn matters. And so we see these battlegrounds over the curriculum in these schools. It truly is a battleground. It, really it is, is a political act to print criteria for publishing and then publish according to the criteria. That's right. And so you see in a state like California where the legislature has taken on the idea of mandating kind of critical American studies and race and ethnic studies courses for, I believe, middle school and high school students. You can look one state away in Arizona has looked to ban and end those racial ethnic courses. People of color, students of color feel validated and affirmed and they feel like they're raising their critical consciousness. Many white students as well feel as though this isn't making me anti-American. This isn't teaching me self-hate. This is giving me a more critical perspective. This is allowing me to diagnose ills within the system, which is not the same as not loving a system. We can love something and see its flaws, right? But many people within the state, within the school board, within the state legislature feel as though this is indoctrinating anti-American. American sentiment within the country. One, I think, really notable element of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine yes. is the persistent thread that black people have always been some of the most vigilant patriots. Oh, and we're going to get been to able that. To be the most truest That's Americans, so right? ironic. Because they're able to call out right. Right, the flaws within the system. And how can we improve? How can we continue not only to improve and thrive, but even survive if we are not able to acknowledge and willingly embrace the need for changes to the system. And so what comes from what comes that ability to critique those ills? Proper learning of the system, warts and all, not the scouring as you spoke of earlier, but a real reckoning with the ways in which we did bad things. That's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to learn it. It's only to, okay to grapple with it and to reckon with the legacies, to reckon with that past, to reckon with how it shapes us in our current and our future trajectories. If not, if we continue to allow our education system to give each crop of students um, a very ignorant and naive impression of what America is, where America has been, then we continue to allow these ills and these horrors to be perpetuated. Because people are largely unable to see them and call them out. And that's very troubling. It's very challenging. So we do have to think about the responsibility of everyone that has a hand in shaping these curricula. To think about the responsibility we have to engage people meaningfully and critically so that they have the tools to identify these ills and think imaginatively and creatively about solving them. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor and author of the soon-to-be-released book entitled 
The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics for Action. It'll be available in January. Pre-orders are out now. Uh, And he joins me in studio. We're talking about reparations, a large bite to chew on. We'll see what we don't finish today that we will be able to do perhaps also in a co- another conversation with Taisha Brown, originally scheduled to be a participant in today's program. So as you were talking, Devin, about these tools that we acquire in a, a, an honest education in history of our country, I guess it calls that isn't it, wouldn't it be a democratic value for us to be intellectually honest about our history. Sure, I would say, but I know there's a great deal of intense disagreement on what makes someone uh, adhere to core American values. I mean, there is a very strong sentiment from many people that get to have a firm say in shaping the curricula and shaping kind of who gets to be patriotic and who gets to be a true American, that if you're critical of this country, then you are not truly patriotic. That if you find fault with any element of this country, you can get out. And so I think there's a real danger in perpetuating that notion, particularly because that idea is often used to stigmatize people of color who have very legitimate reasons and grounds for being critical of the country because they're living out the disparity between the promise of the American dream and the reality of our racially stratified society. W.E. Du Bois called it double consciousness, this uh, ever-present sense of two-ness, one's blackness, one's Americanness. So many people can relates to that feeling because they feel it in their bones and so it's quite striking and insulting and belittling to be told you can't make this critique you can't call out this very real and obvious truth because that's not american that's simply a false premise that we should be able to reject on its face you can love someone and find fault with them you can love everything that you have and find fault with it that doesn't mean that you don't deserve it, that you don't deserve that person in your life. And so that simple logic fallacy is something that needs to be called out because it perpetuates this very dangerous idea that true Americans don't think this country has to improve in any way. True Americans don't think that we have to atone for anything that's come before. And that thinking is very persistent and I think very pernicious in allowing these structural inequalities to persist. Because you can always counter those inequalities to say, well, I might see this evidence of structural inequality. I might see this evidence of injustice, but it does not square. It does not reckon with my core unyielding beliefs about the justness of this country. And so I will find a way to compartmentalize or rationalize away that injustice rather than do something about it and rather than stand against it. And so when we think about the dividing lines, it's not simply about people that are actively marshaled to uh, advance the cause of racial justice versus people that are actively opposed to it. We also have to think about the people that are in the middle and how that quiet resistance is also very harmful to the cause of advancing racial justice. And that, again, comes back to the ideas that we're socialized with and how those ideas are not challenged by a reckoning with our real history, our real reality. We're all taught in our history about American exceptionalism, and I guess I want to sort of put the the take on that. Yeah, we're exceptional in in the cruelty we are able. We've been 
we've had the capacity to perpetrate. And it's a very persistent kind of cruelty right up until the present. So I, I wanted to turn around the exceptionalism, really. It's actually the role in which African Americans have advanced democratic values, as you were referring to in the, the New York Times Project 1619 that brought a sort of a thread throughout the, the exceptional essays, it, not to beat up the word exceptional, to overuse it too much, but the social movements born from the successes of African Americans mobilizing over the centuries, we've all been beneficiaries of those democratic principles and values exercise there but it's so that it's an irony of where what is exceptional and I, so I just to address that so let's talk about we we're not going to have enough time to cover every one of them but we'll try to explore as best we can the domains where reparations need to be addressed over the 400 years of oppression and while we think of each one of these that there is this resultant drama that's exacted intergenerational cost. That trauma is nothing, it's not palpable by somebody who doesn't suffer from that trauma. But the trauma is one of those huge, sort of, it's like a, it's a cosmic deficit that's always running in the African-American DNA. Right, and um, whew, it's just, I feel like in recent years, I have been exposed to some of the critical works by scholars and theorists that try to operationalize that intergenerational trauma. I think of, among many others, the work of Julia Jordan Zachary, who's thought about the ways in which uh, the trauma and the pain that black women in particular have felt is transmitted from one generation down to the other, but not just the pain, right? But the tool set to deal with that pain and that trauma in very proactive ways. And so how do we reorient, especially in the narratives that we pass down from one generation to another, the sense of stigma and despair and pain, how do we transform that into resolve and resilience? And I think these ideas, these threads run through so many of the narratives that have been passed down from black generation to black generation within formal spaces, within informal spaces, uh, barbershops and salons and churches and uh, the black newspapers and black radio stations and black Twitter, all these informal and informal spaces. We're having these conversations that always build and layer on top of one another. You know, this is the world in which we live how do we respond? How do we deal with it? That's what I try to touch on in my book project and thinking yes. about why the type of political anger that so effectively and consistently mobilizes white Americans to take on electoral actions, that same anger is not felt in same reserve by black people. It is not translated to the same sets of actions among black people because within and among black people, there's this overarching sense of resignation, which may lead to resolve and resilience, but it's to say, we can't get angry in the same way. There's a cost for us for expressing this anger, at least out in these public spaces. Um, but within our spaces, we're going to feel all of the feels. We're going to cry together. We're going to lash out together. We're going to laugh together. We're going to take, take control and take power within our capacity to do so by understanding that we are not defined by the bounds upon us we're defined by the strength and the grace that we show in the face of these bounds 
And honestly, when we think about it, what's more distinctly American than looking at these bounds and looking at these limits and saying, I'm not going to let those define me. The same revolutionary spirit that we celebrate within the founders of the country is something that we see in very clear and evident display from black people, uh, whether they uh, were shipped onto these shores, right, or whether they've been here for six generations from the outhouse to the White House, we see the same sense of reserve. And so when I read and hear the narratives that are evident in the 1619 Project, I think about how powerful it is for black people to be able to tell their stories in a way that's unfiltered, in a way that other people that don't typically have access to these black spaces, that they can see, right? We are true and proud Americans, and this is our story of struggle. This is our story of overcoming that struggle. And I think it's incumbent on everyone that says they are proud American to recognize that struggle and to see the connective thread, the distinct Americanness of this years and decades and centuries long struggle to attain full personhood and the full rights of citizenship within the U.S. And let's take that up, that one, one of the many institutional barriers is the suffrage, that it wasn't just at the founding of the nation that, that slaves were, they had to be counted so that the South could have an advantage electorally uh, on the national level, but that it continues to this day that the Republican uh, operative, Tom Hofeller, who had his uh, little thumb drives taken uh, out and put into the public domain, but at where he was trying to, his example, and I'll mention the example in the state of Florida currently, but that he was saying that the Republicans could use in their districts those incarcerated people to count toward their their congressional district census count. But this, the irony is those incarcerated people were not themselves did not have suffrage. They could not participate, but they'd be counted. It was just, it's like a flashback to the founding of our country. And then the idea that after Florida last November overwhelmingly approved the reinstating of the suffrage to felons who've served their time that the it's a partisan thing that the republican leadership in the governor's house and in the legislature rolled back what the the people spoke they said we want these former felons to be able to vote again but the restitution that was required before that voting right could be reinstated so i i don't think that's a finished chapter but these are if you could talk about those examples of how that toolkit of counting but not allowing a participation continues to this day That's spot on. What we saw in Florida was essentially after what would have been the largest expansion in voting rights since the 1965 Voting Rights Act, essentially the imposition of a poll tax to prevent and practice this expansion of suffrage. We can think about even beyond uh, felon disenfranchisement, the ways in which the structuring uh, or the drawing of district boundaries or the creation of stiffer restrictions or stiffer requirements to vote also have the effect of either disenfranchising black votes or diluting black votes, actually making them count less Doing because both. of the way in which black people are packed into districts, just making their vote less meaningful and less impactful in overall kind of vote allocations and distributions. So when we think about reparations, right, if we're really thinking about repairing these inequalities, 
we can think about these kinds of structural changes what would it look like if the black vote had the full force of power uh what would it look like if our carceral system even in the wake of expansive efforts to decriminalize and even legalize uh drugs such as marijuana what if we actually took on greater levels of reform so that we still didn't see arrest disparities for marijuana even in the states in which it has been uh, legalized right exactly. and what if we made the actual effort to release on mass the large 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 numbers of black men and women that have been jailed for these drug charges that are no longer felonies or even in some states misdemeanors if we stopped heralding uh white entrepreneurs who are getting into the legal pot trade and started recognizing the systematic uh demolishment of lies for people that have done the exact same thing and simply have a different skin color right that could be reparations right? so to, to take up the the suffrage issue along with this incarceral issue is that with the restitution that the state of florida is now going to require i don't know and i've run it up the the fire the the flagpole but i, I would like uh, if you could comment on whether there is a movement afoot to look at where the incarcerated people, not just in Florida, but elsewhere, but th we know that they are slave labor, and that's totally an intentional word choice, that the slave labor undervalued their certain participation in the economic marketplace, and uh, where they're um, adding value to uh, manufactured goods with various, or agricultural goods in Florida too. And I guess the Angola prison has uh, this huge agricultural concern. But whether the the restitution has been paid for, if I mean, w if we even go there with allowing for that provision, if with the slave labor, the undervalued labor should wipe out any kind of assumptions about whether there's any kind of financial responsibility with an incarcerated person in Florida and elsewhere. Right. And I think what you just spoke to harkens back to kind of our opening threads of conversation, whereas we continue to see so many of our institutions that comprise our American system, not just government, right, but our entire system of living and operating. So many of those institutions still generating worth on the basis of systematically exploited labor. And so it's hard to think about reparations simply in the form of a monetary amount when we still have black people disproportionately being subject to labor exploitation. So you can think about within the prisons, right, the ways in which prisoners uh, are farming our crops, right, and putting out fires and doing all kinds of needed, vital, valuable services. And so we can think about how that incentivizes the state to always maintain uh, a fresh crop of prisoners, Right. And so we're incentivizing the state to maintain a carceral state. And so we think about what can be done. You know, there's so much very intensive and costly labor being done by people affiliated with the prison abolitionist movement. Right. That are right. looking not simply to reform, but to drastically rethink how we engage in criminal justice and to really force us to question whether the distribution of resources towards building and expanding and maintaining these prisons is not just wasteful, right, but actively harmful to our democratic ideals and to our engagement. And if there are much more effective means of criminal justice than the very idea of prisons, which have so many toxic costs, toxic literally and figuratively, when we think about even the environmental effects. 
So maybe the the conversation isn't quite capturing what's really happening in the economic market, in the, the marketplace, that if we're advocating for, um, we're talking about what it costs to incarcerate a person, the, the kind of fiscal impacts of that, but we're not ever going to reach any kind of solution with that if on, especially where there's privately owned and operated incarceration systems, that they're so incentivized with that undervalued labor market, uh, the labor force in their prisons, that we're, we're never going to make that appeal about how much it's costing on the, the public fiscal side, because the private side is generously earning off of that incarcerated labor. For sure. When you think about that private public prison industrial complex. Right? Which is you only going more. up. That's right. It, it, it's got, it started to continue. It picked up in momentum since 2017. Certainly. And so you have this entire economy right, that people are relying on. And so that stiffens and strengthens their resolve to maintain the status quo. Because we're not simply talking about the people that are profiting off the building and maintenance of the prison buildings. We're talking about now the entire crop of people that are employed as this phalanx of corrections officers and security and all of this, right? Of course, you think about the lifeblood of the police officers who make the arrests that continue to fill the ranks of the prisons and keep the system going. You think about the legal actors that are incentivized to get people jail time, even when they don't need jail time. Well, you know, just take this plea, you know, I know you say you didn't do it, but we don't have time to go through the motions, right? So you have this entire interconnected web and like I said earlier an entire economy right built on uh, this system and so that system is certainly engaged in self-preservation at all costs and so we have to think about the cost of people that are engaged in challenging this system how they are carrying on the legacy of previous abolitionists and civil rights and black rights and black power movements Uh, whether they get the same airtime whether they get the same notoriety the work they're doing is incredibly viable and meaningful and so when we think about the 1619 project we can think about the need the really critical need to surface the continued stories of people that are the torchbearers, that are the patriotic Americans that are challenging these systems of racial inequality and racial inequity, taking on great risk to themselves. How can we surface those narratives and those stories so that people can live in those experiences and join that cause, join that side? And so hopefully this is the start of a conversation. And we've seen the kind of response even to this project with many people saying this is an anti-American thing. This is teaching self-aid and this and that. And it's simply telling stories, right? It's not telling what is ideological agenda. It's saying here are the sights and the sounds and the smells and the feelings and the thoughts and the pain and the anguish and the joys and the triumphs and the trials of the people that lived in these moments in time. So if that's radical, if that's dangerous, then I guess we just need a lot more danger in this world. A whole lot more. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest for this entire hour is Davin Phoenix. He's UCI political science professor, and he's coming out in January. You can pre-order now, though, his new book published by Cambridge University Press, The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics for Action. And we're we're trying to, to get through some of the structural, institutional barriers that need addressing in order that reparations 
can we can move into any meaningful kind of reparations for this legacy of slavery that we've all either perpetrated or benefited from, plain and simple. I guess the, well, we got we can talk a little bit about pu- the public health and public health outcomes. We haven't really given it any kind of a glancing look here, but if we could talk about the legacy of, I mean, we talked about trauma, how that can, that can be a toxic sort of aspect to a person's public health, but public health outcomes, how African Americans have been treated as different species that led to their being undercared for or their being um, being treated as poor samples for uh, research, which has had an, a consequence of not getting proper health care understanding about African-American physical bodies, as well as African-Americans deciding not to participate in clinical trials because of the legacy of unethical treatment in research in the past. Yes, I'm glad you raised this. This is another really critical area when we think about the ways in which reparations might be impactful potentially at kind of in, uh, facilitating or jumpstarting the kinds of restructurings that can actually work to alleviate some of these persistent structural racial inequalities. When we think about black people in health, there's been uh, quite a bit of conversation in the last year or so about the high rates of uh, black maternity uh, mortality. Right. And we think about all of the overlapping factors that shape this and many other health disparities faced by black people. And some of these are so simple and so traced to intentional decisions in this history that we still need to reckon with. For instance, the lack of access to quality hospitals or the just extreme distance. I was just seeing on Twitter, Michael Herio from The Root did some digging and found that there were intentional efforts in the Jim Crow era to uh, create new accreditation standards for the stated purpose of removing the accreditation of black hospitals. And so you take away the what access that black people had to obviously in a segregated society, black hospitals. You also heighten the requirements of getting your accreditation as a doctor and you effectively bar black people from entering uh, white segregated medical schools while preventing them from being able to open your own and you've got a huge disparity that we're still reckoning with. You fast forward to today, which is obviously skipping over a lot, and you see study after study showing that uh, black people do not get the same care uh, because among other things, they're stereotyped to have higher thresholds of pain or stereotyped to not understand what they're talking about and so they can go to a doctor and say, I'm dealing with this and simply not be believed. And so we have to reckon with within the physical sciences these very persistent anti-black beliefs and stereotypes that shape the type of care that black people are receiving when they do indeed have access to hospitals. And so when we think about reparations in this regard, we have to think about shifting resources to be able to build hospitals where black people are located, quality care. We have to think about what we're training our physical care providers in school up to and also before medical school so that they're not giving systematically weaker treatment to black patients. We have to think about access to health insurance and whether reparations can come partially in the form of providing 
ease of insurance for black people who are disproportionately located in jobs that wherein they won't get health insurance as part of the job, right? We have to deal with higher costs of health in general based on where they live. And so again, we have to think about all of the overlapping factors that kind of create this economy of disparity within the system. And if we want to be meaningful about addressing these disparities, we have to think about how we are perpetuating the legacy of Jim Crow era, perpetuating the legacy of the slavery era. And just as those were intentional policies to create racial stratification in the health system, we have to be intentional about creating solutions to those disparities. And that's not going to come on the basis of colorblind treatment. We have to think about the role of race in structuring these and think about race-specific solutions. Head on, embracing that deficit over that's been hardwired. Davin, I know there is so much more that we can say and this is every time we get together and you have the full hour on these shows. I always say, let's, if we can continue this, when your book comes out, I want to be one of the first people that we're going to, that will showcase this, this book when it's available. I want to talk about that. And I, you are the man I've been asking for months. We could talk about this reparations issue. It's a huge bite that I tried to chew on a little bit with you, and there's so much more. I really want to own the the shortcomings of what I could accomplish today, knowing there's a whole great deal more to do. Davin, thank you for coming in studio to join me today on Ask a Leader. Thanks for having me. My guest was Davin Phoenix, UCI political science professor and author of the soon-to-be-released book entitled The Anger Gap, How Race Shapes Emotion in Politics for Action. And that's the wrap for today. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.